Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, talk about great guests. I must say that these two people are truly my very favorite guests to have on the show. They've been on every year. We have to have them on every year. They're two of my very favorite identity theft experts, too. I honor them. I love them. I've known them for a very long time, and they are doing absolutely wonderful work for the Identity Theft Resource Center. We're going to be interviewing my dear friends, Linda Foley and Jay Foley. And for those of you who haven't heard them before, haven't been to our website and seen a lot about them, I'm going to give you a little brief background and then we'll get started. Linda Foley is the the co-founder and co-director of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which is in San Diego. It's a nationwide nonprofit identity theft program out to help victims of identity theft and to prevent this crime as best they can. Linda herself was a former victim of identity theft, just as I was, and that makes her uniquely suited to understanding the complexity of this crime. She has worked with literally thousands of victims, and she understands it from the inside view. The Identity Theft Resource Center supports thousands of victims through its website, email, and telephone correspondence, and I must say that I'm thrilled to know that recently they were able to afford a toll-free number for victims, and I'll be repeating it throughout the evening. It's 888-400-5530. That's their toll-free number for free assistance. Linda developed and wrote the numerous comprehensive publications on the Identity Theft website, which you can see at the Identity Theft Resource Center website at idtheftcenter.org. And she has organized training in the national office, and she has trained a network of trained volunteers in many areas of the nation. Linda provides testimony at the state and federal level and from various agencies 
and she remains a resource for legislators throughout the nation. Linda has appeared on numerous major television news shows, several talk shows, radio shows, and she's widely quoted by major newspapers, radio stations, and magazines. She has been honored as the 10 Leadership Program, San Diego's ABC affiliate, the individual leader for 2001, and she's a recipient of the prestigious Foundation for Improvement of Justice Award in 2000, the 2004 National Crime Victim Service Award presented by the U.S. Attorney General for the Department of Justice, and many more commendations by Senator Feinstein and governors. I could go on and on, but you can see more about her at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy and at IDTheftCenter.org. Additionally, tonight, we are so thrilled to have her partner in crime, so to speak, Jay Foley. And Jay is terrific. He is the co-founder and co-director of the Identity Theft Resource Center, which we talked about is in San Diego. And just to let you know that the ITRC was established in 1999 in response to the growing need for victim assistance and help with this terrible crime. As the ITRC's primary criminal justice contact, Jay has received support and accolades from members of law enforcement across the country, and they frequently refer crime victims to him for assistance. Jay currently sits on numerous law enforcement, governmental, and legislative task forces and has testified at legislative hearings as well. He's also a very popular presenter and trainer. He has a great sense of humor, which you'll probably hear tonight. He's always kidding us. And he's also appeared on many major television shows. He's been quoted in newspapers, just like Linda. And he is also a recipient of many, many awards as well. And you can find out more about those awards at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Without further ado, I want to get them on because they have a brand new study that we want to talk about. So thank you, Linda and Jay. You are so wonderful to come back on. Well, thank you for having us. Well, so you have been doing this study. It's called the Identity Theft, the Aftermath 2008. But you've really been doing this study now for six years. Yes, our first one was 2002. Right. So where did this idea of doing this victimization study come from, Linda? CalPERG and Privacy Rights Clearinghouse did a study in 2000 which I was a participant in as a victim at that time, um, called Nowhere to Turn. And it was the first study of its kind looking at victimization. And once we started the Identity Theft Resource Center, we saw that legislators were using this information, but it needed to be updated. This is a crime that evolves and changes. The needs of victims change um, depending upon what's going on. So we continue to have this study every year so that we can monitor trends and changes in what's going on in the victim's life. So tell me, how actually do you conduct this study? We invite people who have talked with us that we've confirmed as victims, um, that we have email addresses on, to participate in the survey by email, and then they're directed to a website, and then they respond from that point on, Um, And then we go ahead and analyze the data. We have several analysts who go through it with us. And then we sit down and for a couple of months write up all of the information. And those who take a look at it, it's on our website, will see we really let the victims speak for themselves. We try not to do a lot of interpretation 
but we put in the tables that are directly response or answers directly from the survey so that you can see what we're seeing. Linda, so over the years, you know, asking victims to respond, and actually I think I was in one of your first ones as well, how has the willingness of victims to share their stories changed? You know, sometimes I feel like it's pulling teeth, but I also understand that we're pulling scabs off of wounds and pouring salt water over them. I remember back to when I had to fill it out, and perhaps you did too, it's like, I don't know that I want to open up these feelings and start to analyze these feelings in, in answering these questions. Um, but we did have 61 people who, on our final question, which is, this is your chance to have something to say to the nation. What would you like to say? And 61 people put in answers. So victims do want to be heard. It's just that doing a survey, and it's 43 questions long, is a painful way of trying to get answers, but we have no better way to do it. Right. But the good news is that they trust you. Jay, yes. Jay how are you able to put the study results to use? The information that we gather from the study is presented to law lawmakers and presented to the public, presented to businesses in an attempt to modify their practices or change the current laws to enable victims to A, clear their names a little better, and B, so that the, uh, the ugly face of it's a victimless crime, it's a paper crime, there's no harm, is washed away by the fact that, yeah, there are victims here, and this is what they're going through. They can't turn their back on them because now they're seeing real cases and real people. You know, I think it's really so important what you're doing because we see a lot of studies that are done that are done maybe at um, universities or done by the financial industry, and they don't reveal what really is going on in the victim's head, maybe they, they will review, you know, how many victims reported to them or how many cases there are, but they don't get into the nitty-gritty of the emotions, the, the costs, none of that like you do. And so I really honor you because you are taking the kind of study that really needs to be heard, which gets lost in the shuffle. So, and the fact is when we're talking in the business world talks about costs, they talk about dollars and cents. However, the biggest cost to victims usually is time. And yes. how do you quantify time? Yes, and, and the, uh, the, the stress of going through it is really a cost as well because it takes away from family. It takes away from business. It takes away from child rearing. It takes away from so many things in your life because it totally consumes you while you're going through it. And it affects those same groups as well. It puts on marriages and relationships. Children feel that the parent is stressed, so they pick up those feelings, and they begin to wonder, am I safe? So this isn't just an isolated situation where you have just a victim who's suffering, who's dealing with the crime. The whole family and support team is affected at one point or another. Exactly. So, Jay, Let's talk about the various types of identity theft and, and the prevalence of each of those types. You've learned a lot about that in this uh, most recent study, too. That we have. The most prevalent type of identity theft is still financial, unfortunately. That's where the imposter either accesses your accounts or opens new accounts using your personal information, runs them up, 
leaves them out there for collection agencies to come pound on your door, and you have to fight off the collection agencies, the creditors, and the negative impact of this information being placed on your credit report. Other categories that we're seeing and dealing with, we have what we call governmental. That's where the imposter has gone out and used your personal information and had some sort of dealings with the government. They may be working as you. They may be getting government benefits. You could be going to your job every day and suddenly a notice pops up that you have to pay the state back for unemployment that was taken out against your Social Security number. The third category that we deal with quite extensively is criminal identity theft. That's where the criminal goes out. He uses your personal information, commits a crime, either a misdemeanor all the way up to some rather horrendous felonies, gives up your information to law enforcement when he's caught, and you suddenly are tied in the middle of a criminal record that can affect your ability to get a job, affect your ability to maintain a job. I've got a number of victims I'm working with this year that are being terminated because of criminal records that they had nothing to do with. Right, and, and all the employers nowadays are doing background checks for, for just for uh, hiring them and also for promotions. Very true. In addition to that, the last category that we're getting into is medical identity theft. We're finding that the imposter takes your name and social security number and goes to a hospital someplace across the country. They get emergency medical care. They see a doctor. They do this. They do that. And the bills from all of these visits and all this, ver all this medical services end up coming to you through various collection agencies. You don't even know what's going on have no clue about it, and suddenly, boom, here are all these debts. One of my victims had $44,000 worth of emergency surgery and medical procedures done. Wow. It was so devastating for him because on top of everything else, the nature of the medical procedure that was performed also ended up being reported to the Federal Aviation Administration. They revoked his pilot's license. Oh, my goodness. And that ended his business. He ran a flying school. Oh, gosh. And not only that, when you think about somebody getting uh, health care in your name, this establishes a whole health profile. Now with these electronic health records, this could be really a death sentence if somebody has a different blood type than you do and somehow you end up in the hospital unconscious and they give you... Maybe something, you know, the wrong blood type, or if you're allergic to something different from another person, it could be a real medical disaster. That is a very real possibility and one of the great concerns that we have. And that's also one of the areas that we're having some of our biggest challenges. When we first started the Identity Theft Resource Center in 1999, victims used to go to a company and say, I didn't set up this account, I'm a victim of identity theft, and the company's response was, okay, but now we can't talk to you about that account because we have to protect the privacy of the person who set it up. Right, which is we ridiculous. We are now hearing that a very same argument being presented by the medical community on dealing with fraudulent medical records that are being set up. Yeah, you so that means that we need similar laws to what we put together for financial identity theft? like being able to see the application transaction records and such, um, and being able to block information. Very similar to what we now have in federal law through fact. The thing that we have to tell victims is when they know that it's really not their 
medical procedure, they, they really shouldn't even tell the hospital or whatever that it's not them until they get the records. <laughs> That's about the only way they can do it is say, this is in my name. I need to have copies of all these records. That's about the only way that they can get it. Otherwise, like you're right, Jay, they're going to tell them, forget it. It's a privacy matter. If it's not you, you have no right to those records. But if you don't have a right to those records, you can't really correct the records. And even if you try to correct the records, they tell you, no, you can't correct the records because of That's all different. of the, yeah, of the, uh, yes. So this is a real catch-22 that we, you, like you said, we're back in the, the late 90s with regard to medical identity theft. Well, this is clearly an area, what has happened is, as things have evolved, and we've seen this in doing the aftermath, where we'd see mainly it was financial identity theft. And I think we're still hearing primarily from victims about that because other people don't know, you know I've got this theft going on that's all this criminal stuff. I don't didn't understand that was identity theft. So we'll probably hear more about that as people become aware that identity theft is more than just financial. Right. And what? we see overlapping in different categories as well. And as we talk more about medical identity theft and we talk about it with legislators, we will eventually catch up to the point where we are with financial. Yes, because, you know, I mean, uh, victims are victimized by fraudsters who want money or they want services. So getting committing medical identity theft is not only medical, but it is financial because they are using either your health insurance or using your name to get a collection company to come after you for the medical care that they get. But on top of the financial, then you've got all these other challenges that can totally ruin your life. One of the things I noticed in this aftermath, which I thought was really interesting, was that 73% of the of the respondents said that their identity theft was only financial. And then you had the criminal cases represented about 5% and governmental issues represented uh, about 2% and the rest were financial and criminal. You had uh, combinations, 6% financial and government, 9%, and a combination of all three was 5%. So that, that's, you know, for a small grouping, that's a, that's a lot of different types of identity theft. And we've consistently seen this every year, that there are mixed cases going on. Right. Once somebody gets... hard for the victim to identify, what do I do? So, I mean, if it was only financial, it would actually be easier, right? Yes, it would. Yeah. Financial is probably the easiest of the different categories to clean up because of the nature of financial records. They're not fixed. They can be corrected. They can be adjusted. And over the past 10 years, we've been able to see a number of laws come into effect that give the individual consumer more control in the financial arena. Right. The fact that we have a credit credit reporting agencies where all of these accounts are reported, at least if they're consumer accounts, they're reported to the credit reporting agencies. So if if consumers are checking their credit reports, if they're going to annualcreditreport.com and they're getting those reports, they can see it there. But when it's something like medical identity theft, there isn't a central repository that you can go to. There, There isn't really an easy way to find out about criminal identity theft unless you're doing a background check. And that isn't really easy for people to get. You can't get that for free very often. 
and governmental identity theft, there's there's no central repository for that either, is there, Linda? No, there is not. You know, it's a matter of, on financial identity theft, we worked with it for so long, we now know the steps to take. But when we come to these other crimes, legislatively, we don't have the tools um, working with different entities, jurisdiction to jurisdiction. We just don't have the tools in a standardized form like we do in financial, that as advocates throughout the nation, that we can say to someone, do step one, two, three, four, and five. Right. And that's what's so great about the Identity Theft Resource Center. If you go to idtheftcenter.org, you're going to find fact sheets. And I know, Linda, for many years, you guys have been putting together fact sheets and trying to suggest at least standardization of what should be done. And then other people throughout the country can look at that. And, you know, we all have tried to forge our way through this crazy forest of what to do with medical identity theft, what to do with criminal identity theft, and what to do. And one of the things we're seeing more, and I wonder if you guys are too, and that is cyber identity theft. What about that? Jay? Uh, to the cyber world we go. Yeah. Yes, we are seeing an increase in complaints in the, in the cyber arena. If you pay any attention to any of the studies that have come out in regards to the anti-phishing, anti-spyware, anti-virus problems that are going on, each of these has shown a growth rate in attacks that is phenomenal. Back in 1999, people were getting spoofed over their AOL account. Now they're getting spoofed over just about every account that's out there. We are seeing spoofs pop up and attack entities that really have no reason to have your personal information, but because you might be affiliated, they're sending you an email trying to get you to give up information. Everybody's heard about the Nigerian scams. Right. Well, the Nigerian scams still exist. They're coming from Hong Kong. They're coming from Singapore. They are coming from Romania. They are coming from the Ukraine, from Russia. They're coming from England. They're coming from France, Germany. Just about every country on the planet these scams are originating from, and they're all bouncing through the United States. The mm. only truly fun one that we've seen in this last year was the one that originated in Pennsylvania, identifying for a financial institution a place in Arizona and providing a contact phone number to a residence outside of San Francisco. Oh, goodness. When that one hit, the victim was nice enough to send it to us. We provided it to some folks at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And it's amazing how fast they went over to this gentleman's house and knocked on his door and said, you know, you're really not doing the right thing here. Oh, my goodness. Well, that was good. That was a good ending. Well, every now and then we get lucky. Yeah. And, you know, we're also seeing people who are finding that their identity is stolen in these social networking arenas. And that's pretty scary when, you know, you were talking about identity theft of companies and they ask you for your sensitive information and then you get hooked into that phishing and you give it away. And there's also the other side, right? Are you hearing a lot more about that as well? We're hearing a tremendous increase in the sweetheart scams. I love you. Find me air-conditioned Honda. I'm going to have people send you packages. I want you to freight forward them on to me at my address in Nigeria or this or that or the other thing. We're seeing tons and tons of those. We're seeing the lottery scams. We are seeing job scams. In fact, one of the most critical scams that we're seeing right now, because it 
it rearranges the victim's position in the I'm a victim, I'm not a victim category. Somebody going out says, I'm looking for employment. They get an email. We have the perfect job. We want you to be our accounts receivable clerk. We will have people send you checks. We want you to deposit them into the bank account. Wire the money to us at this location, keeping 10% or 15% for yourself. Right. The interesting thing about it is, first and foremost, these checks that are delivered to the individual are all cashier's checks, which put them into a completely different category of processing than a business check or a private check. Cashier's checks cannot be held. They cannot be interfered with. They have to be treated directly as cash and go. Well, the person does that, and then they discover that the cashier's check was counterfeit. Right. Now they're on the hook to the bank for all the money that got wired, as well as the money that is in there sitting in their account, which the bank is automatically going to seize. The problem here is because they're the ones who actually walked in the door to the bank and deposited the check. That line from being a victim of a scam and to that never netherworld of now you're considered a co-conspirator of the crime. Right, and you know now what? This is this is I a love yeah. Is they send you a letter saying you are a victim of a scam? Yeah. <laughs> and would you please, you know, we want to help clear this up for you. So. If you'll please go to this website and provide the following information, we'll take care of it for right. you. And, and like, then they just play on your fears and you just jump in without thinking. Absolutely. You know, emails are this instant world, the microwave world. And it's like if you'd gotten that via postal mail, you would have taken a look at it. You would have thought about it, taken a second look at it. Went, oh, I don't know about this. Right. But with emails, it's almost like watching yeah. OVC. I've got to buy it fast. Right, right. And I think, Jay, when you brought up this issue about these employment scams, especially now with so many people being laid off and they're online and they're desperately looking for jobs, that this is really a a very frightening but very easy scam now because people are desperate for work and they're willing to do almost anything. So it's so important that you're bringing this out in the open to, to deal with that. That's one area that is truly a great concern for us. But another area is that many people out there assume that our bank is our friend. Our bank will protect us. Our bank will tell us if this isn't right. I'm working right now with a victim that he got this job offer. He took it. He got the checks. He took them down to the bank. He deposited them. And he let them sit there for, for 10 days. He went in and he, I mean, he asked the manager of the bank. He asked several tellers. He begged and pleaded with these folks, am I doing the right thing? Is this legit? Is this real? They never gave him any clue that it was not. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, that's terrible because he is going to them, and they have a fiduciary duty to help protect him. But they didn't, huh? Well, they gave him the best advice that they can legally. What they tell Which is nothing. <laughs> and because of that... But why would it take 10 days for... I mean, you would think if he waited 10 days that the 10 days they would have been able to see whether there was money in that account that was being processed or not. Do you know what I mean? In the well, fraudster's that's, account. That's the unique element of it. 
what is happening is these thieves are not only creating counterfeit checks, but they are actually counterfeiting commercial entity checks against a proper commercial entity's bank account. I see. Now the money so comes it's real out money. of their account. Yeah. They yeah. notice it. They say, hey, wait a second. We didn't write that check. Now they go back and they want the money back. And, and here we go. We now have a victim. And that's what we need to talk about right now is that people don't realize how dangerous checks are, whether they're business checks or personal checks, because the routing number and the account number on the bottom of your check can easily be replicated on those checks that you buy and make at Office Depot or Office Max, anywhere. You just create new checks. You don't even have to use the same name or the same name of the bank on those checks. But the routing number and the account number will siphon the money out of that that particular account. It doesn't matter what the rest of the checking account says, right? That's correct. And the deposit slip also has your routing number on it. Yes. So you've got to be careful. You know, I don't remember the last time that we have written a check. We have switched almost completely to online banking now. Yes, yes. And that's one of the reasons why. Anytime you can take the human element out of this, um, never give a check to someone. You walk into this little store, you write a check to the person behind the store, or you're traveling or something. If you don't know who that person is, you're not work. You haven't been in and out of that company for years now. Don't write a check to them. Right. Put it on your credit card. And you know when we're looking at negative changes here, we are seeing more debit card fraud going on. And what the thieves are doing is they're realizing it's harder to get credit now. The economy has tightened up. Creditors have tightened up. They're not issuing credit as easily as they used to. So where are they going to turn? We said years, several years ago they're going to start going into check fraud, and that's exactly what you've been talking about. But they're also going into debit card fraud. And the difference is, is that People think that debit card must be used with a PIN. Well, if it's got a Visa or a MasterCard logo on it, at a lot of stores, they can hit the word credit and it acts like a credit card. The difference is, with a credit card, that money is yours. You get a billing statement, and then you pay your bill. And you can with dispute, card, and you can dispute. It's taken out of there, and you have to argue with the bank to get it back. Right, and with a rather do. Right, and with a credit card... You get your statement, and you can dispute anything that's fraudulent on there or that you suspect. And you can't do that when you use your debit card because the money is immediately siphoned out as soon as you swipe it. So it's so gone you from your checking account. Money. Yes, Correct. yes. And then everything else can start bouncing. I, right. I have to say I would never use a debit card, but I... It's funny, I have um, a, a set of new clients in my office the other day, and they're both attorneys. And we were talking about debit cards, and, and I said, now, uh, you don't have a debit card. Oh, we never use a debit card. We only have a, an ATM. And then I said, pull it out of your wallet. And both of them had the Visa MasterCard logo on it. And I said, do you realize that this is a debit card? Do you realize that you can have a regular ATM that you can use to put money in the bank or take money out, and you don't need the Visa MasterCard logo on it for you to be able to do that. So a lot of people are totally uh, clueless as to the difference between an ATM, which must be used with a PIN and cannot be used as a credit card, and an actual debit card. So that's why it's so important that we just clarify that. The other thing is that I don't think we're going to change patterns and people are going to stop using debit cards. I wish we could. 
So at least let's give them a different way of doing it, which is if you must have a debit card, put it on a special account that has a couple of hundred dollars in it that you keep putting money in. And that's money that you can afford to lose and that you don't need to pay the rent at the end of the month. And you better do what Linda was talking about a minute ago, a minute ago, and that is to check your online accounts all the time. Because if you go over that amount or if somebody steals, if you only have $200 in it and then someone goes in and tries to steal $300 and your bank allows it, they're going to start charging you $85 a piece, which they actually did to my daughter. <laughs> And um, so it's really important, like Linda said, it's important to do online banking. And what I noticed is, at least with my bank, and I'm sure with all other banks, you can set up alerts that will tell you um, such things as the account balance, send you a, a little email that tells you account balance, or tell you when there has been action taken just to verify. And I started doing that, Linda. I don't know about you, but I would never... Uh, I would never go without checking my online banking at least once or twice a week, at the very least. Jay, how often do you check ours? I let, I let Jay actually do our banking, crazy I, as I am. You trust that guy? <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing about it is I've already got ours wired so that any kind of transaction whatsoever we get emails on. Yep, you get those alerts like I was talking about. One of the things that we've been hearing in the debit card arena that is actually quite unique, a lot of companies, or a lot of banks are advertising, we will make you whole after the fact if your information is stolen. Well, they'll do that. And then about three weeks later, they go in and withdraw all the money. Right. There's this strange little caveat that you signed when you agreed to accept the debit card that you will protect it and Keep it safe from theft and from cloning. And if somebody got in there and did that, obviously you didn't do your job. So they're holding you responsible for it. Yep. There was a case not long ago here in Southern California, and I won't mention the fact that it was in Orange County, <laughs> where a debit card was cloned, and by the time they were done with the transactions, it all took place in an eight-hour spread. The number of clone debit cards against this one account generated over $30,000 worth of overdraft charges. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. You know, that sort of leads us to that you had asked to talk about, which was, have we seen any positive changes? And there was one remarkable change that happened this year that we sort of we took a look at and went, my word. <laughs> um, every year we ask, you know, the moment of discovery, and how did you find out about the crime? Right. And every year it's always, well, someone's, you know, asked me for a collection, or it's been a negative or an adverse way that they found out about the situation. Right. It wasn't through their own doing, or their, it wasn't really Correct. being proactive. It wasn't a positive experience. Right. Okay. This year, for the very first time, in fact, last year in 2007, or the year before, 82% of the respondents found out in an adverse way. In 2008 survey, it was down to 34%. Very good. So that they are taking some active uh, protection on their own to, to ascertain. And the businesses are as well. The businesses went from 10% to 21%, which were phone calls to them 
verifying fraud alerts or noticing unusual activities um, or notifying them that we seem to see a different address. And it's sort of funny because it's the same thing that happened to me when I first became a victim. Someone called and asked, did you move? And I said, no. They said, well, there's a new address on your credit report. So the businesses are taking action. They don't want that fraud loss any more than we do anymore. And then the self-proactive went from 8% to 45%. People get it. The consumers are getting it. And we can't put, you know, this, the consumers don't know anything. They do. They're checking their statements. They're right. checking their credit reports. They are doing steps that will help to minimize things. And a lot of that is due to you and Jay, because you have done so much in the area of identity theft to, to really promote protection, promote changes, promote new laws. You've done a terrific job. I should tell my audience that we are speaking with my wonderful friends, Linda and Jay Foley, who are the co-founders and co-directors of the Identity Theft Resource Center. And I also want to say that just recently they now have a toll-free number for no-cost victim assistance at 888-400-5530. And also, they have a wonderful newsletter that I get all the time, and you can go to Identity Theft, uh, to the Identity Theft Resource Center at idtheftcenter.org, and you can sign up for it and find out what's going on in the identity theft realm and how to protect yourself and what to do if it happens to you. So you guys are terrific. Yes, our new iTrack News. It's We're starting our third edition now. Oh, good. I can't wait to get it. Yeah, now, we're, just sending, getting, we're just sending out the second edition. All right. So let's let's talk a little bit about what are the greatest areas of negative t- changes. D- uh, Jay, do you, can you share those with us? You caught me on that one. I think Linda's going to have Oh, I'm sorry. That. Okay. Well, I think we have different things. You have different views, but well. okay. All right. Um, you know, as I go through this study every year, there are certain questions that I just cringe when I get to. And I think, for me, the negative part of it was that people are still feeling like this is a victimless crime, that they are feeling lost as far as what steps to take. And I think there's a contributing factor here, which is that we're getting a lot of publicity about identity theft, and, you know, I would like to say the ITRC works as a team here. I'm not just writing everything for the website now. We've got a team of six people writing. Um, that's how many it takes for us to keep up with what's going on. Right. Um, this is a group effort, or it would not be the ITRC. Everybody in this office, all 11 of us, just, you know, truly care about doing what needs to be done. Um, but we're seeing that information that's going out to the public may be misinformation. They think there's things that can protect them. Or they don't understand that some consumer products that are out there have limitations, for instance. Or that if it's a pre-existing condition that they can't necessarily get help. Um, they think that they hear identity theft is not so bad. Um, they get a booklet, and then they move forward, and they take so many missteps that by the time they get to us, they're so tangled up, they don't know which way to turn, and they're emotionally exhausted. 
I, I have to tell you that yesterday I got a call from somebody that said that they have been experiencing identity theft for 20 years, started going through a, a whole, you know, quagmire of, of the craziness of what they've gone through that I just said, look, <laughs> I'm going to give you the Identity Theft Resource Center first for you to talk with them because she's right in San Diego. And I sent her to you. You'll probably never forgive me for hey, that thanks. one. <laughs> but, you know, I do try and help people. But I I knew that she could actually come in because she she really needed somebody to sit down with her and go through all that. And you're right. I mean, if you're, if you're not going to go um, and look at the proper steps to take through the Identity Theft Resource Center at idtheftcenter.org or my website at identitytheft.org or the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse at privacyrights.org, or the Federal Trade Commission at um, ftc.gov slash ID theft. You know, there are a lot of resources out there that were not out there when Linda and I were victims way back, right? Thank God they are there now. Exactly. You know, that's why, Mari, you and Jay and I have become so passionate about this. We all... and. I speak for the whole identity theft, want to make it a little easier for those who follow because the problem is that the criminals are getting better at what they're doing. And that's the other negative thing that we're seeing. They are more sophisticated. We're seeing actually, and we asked an analyst on this, two types of criminals now. You see those who are the more amateur ones who may be doing desperate times to mean desperate measures or they're they're taking advantage of family situations. They have addictions. Those crimes are trending downward. Yeah. What is going upward are the career criminals who have incorporated identity theft into their way of life, and they know the ins and outs of how to do everything. They've got the equipment for counterfeiting credit cards, yes, driver's licenses, and everything else. And, and technology is, is so cheap now. They can go online and order this technology stuff. You know, all of these techniques. Jay, well, I want to buy your information. And the scary part is, do you know how much your information is worth? Yeah, I saw. Yeah. 60 cents. Yes. It's too easy. Now, Jay, I wanted to ask you, you know, as we've seen this economy in the downturn, what role has the economy played recently in this last year? Well, the economy, the, the negative economy has is, is made some very significant changes. First of all, credit has closed off, as Linda mentioned earlier. A lot of people aren't able to go out and get new lines of credit. Credit, is being, credit requests are being scrutinized more. Additionally, what we're seeing is we're seeing credit card companies are installing much stronger analytical software to observe and monitor the transactions that we make. So they're looking closer at, at the spending pattern for abnormal or unusual spending habits, and they're quickly contacting the consumer, the customer, and saying, hey, is this you? Did you really do this? Which shuts down the credit card fraud arena. That's, That's why good. they seem to be targeting more into the debit card arena because they don't have the same analytical software operating. They are not anywhere near as active upon it. And, you know, I bet you know how much we had so, many, so much mortgage fraud. I think now that lenders are so much more skittish about extending credit, we're not going to see as much mortgage fraud or at least, you know, being 
you know, the identity thieves being able to get a mortgage in your name, it's not going to be as easy as it used to be, I don't think. What about what I, about? I would I would disagree with you there because oh. from what I'm hearing from federal law enforcement agencies, they're actually seeing an influx oh. of of mortgage fraud and seconds fraud and refinancing fraud going on. Uh-huh. In fact, they're in the past several months over the last year, they've had three major cases in the real estate arena that have come to trial. And it has been people in the mortgage industry that are using identity theft for generating tremendous numbers of loans, hmm. tremendous dollar amounts. So, so yeah, so there's a lot of fraudsters that are not that are mortgage lenders, not really the the big banks. They're not issuing the 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 loans as easily. Am I correct? It's more correct. Really, the big okay. banks. Are, Big banks where they're suffering is they bought a lot of the mortgage debt. Right. That's what's hurting them. Now we're finding that a large portion of this mortgage debt that they bought is tissue paper. It's not real. Right. And it's causing and creating havoc. Plus, in the fact that a lot of it was overinflated, it's going to be a while before this all stabilizes out clearly. Yes. And but you know, there are a number of people out there that are still finding new ways to manipulate the system and create and conduct the crime. Another thing that we found was the number of credit cards that thieves are opening has diminished. It's between one and three credit cards per social security number. And again, it's because of the pro- proliferation of information that's out there. They only open up a few credit cards and then move on to the next social security number as to not get caught as easily. So now one thief creates more victims rather than victimizing the same person to a larger extent. And Linda, you and I have been recently talking about what I've seen, and I don't know if you've seen this, but I've seen an influx of identity thieves who are opening up business accounts in the name of a consumer, and and maybe the consumer doesn't even have a business. In other words, they work for, you know, a uh, a doctor's office, or they work as a teacher. They don't even have their own business, and some fraudster is pretending that these people are actually have businesses and they want a business account. And what you need to know. Those of you who are listening, your, our audience, is those types of business credit cards do not appear on your credit report. They are only reported to Dun & Bradstreet. They only get reported to the credit bureaus if they go into collections. So by you reviewing your credit reports, you're not going to see these commercial accounts. And that's what these fraudsters are getting pretty smart about because then you don't see it. You won't know about it till it goes into collections. Have you been seeing more of that too, Linda and Jay? We have seen a, a, a tremendous increase in that arena. We're also seeing them using the commercial entities for setting up and laundering through large numbers of checks. Yes. It's it's scary. You know, it, it's really scary. And And as a matter of fact... I am a business owner, but I would not have commercial credit cards. For my for my own business, I use a personal credit card, but I segregate and only use that for business and then my other credit cards for personal. So I do segregate it, but 
I want to be able to see that credit card on my consumer report, and I won't see it on my credit report unless it's really a consumer one. And yet, if you have a large company with 100, 200 employees, some of which have expense accounts, then you can't necessarily do that. Um, you have to find alternate ways of handling the situation. We had one person who called us up and um, their bookkeeper, who had been with them for years, and here's where we have insider-assisted identity theft, um, was slowly embezzling money from them month after month, writing out additional paychecks to herself, um, additional checks to, quote, vendors that didn't exist and such. And they didn't catch it because they, they assumed she was okay. They weren't looking over the billing statement every month. Right. Um, and then when they finally did, they went, oh, my God, no wonder we're thinking about having to declare bankruptcy. They didn't realize there was such a strong monetary loss that she was causing that may cause this company to go out of business. So the business owner does have to take some control here. And they are victims as well. And they're sometimes offenders, just like what happened to you. And I have to tell you, I have a victim right now that I'm helping who was laid off and then his company who had, um, he had one of those commercial credit cards, uh, the, the company had a commercial credit card and they had issued to several different people in the firm, right? Well, they laid him off and then they applied for a credit line using his social. So the business itself committed identity theft against one of its former employees. How do you like that one? Does that remind you of something, Linda? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happened to Linda. So so not only can employers become victims, but unfortunately, employers can also be the perpetrator. We are seeing, I've got a case right now. There's a gentleman driving an 18-wheeler across the United States. He went to work for a small company in Idaho, worked for the man for like three months and decided he didn't like working in that environment, left that company, went and found a different company to work for. He's just recently had his commercial driver's license revoked because supposedly he was driving a load in Florida, a state which he has not driven in in the last 12 years, and got three traffic tickets. Oh, dear. Within a week's time, all dangerous traffic tickets for a commercial driver. And basically, the DMV says, no, you can't drive anymore. What made it interesting is in tracking it down, we were finally able to identify it. This driver is working. The imposter was working for this former employer. Oh, my goodness. And had no record of a driver's license prior to working for that employer. Mm. And of course, with this commercial license pool, that's his livelihood. Right, exactly. And that can happen to people. We're speaking with Linda and Jay Foley, who are the co-directors and co-founders of the Identity Theft Resource Center. You can find out so many wonderful things that they do and get so much help at idtheftcenter.org. And they have a new toll-free number that helps victims at no cost at 888 888- Four hundred fifty-five thirty. Jay, I wanted to ask you how long. Um, no, I wanted to ask you what is the average cost to to businesses right now, or how long does you know anything you want? There were so many great things that you had on here. 
let's just skip here to what is the average time it takes for victims to resolve the fraud nowadays? Once again, you're going to have to ask Linda that one because she's <laughs> sharper on those numbers than I am. I know. you have. This is a long study, by the way. I'm working on legislation right now, and my mind is basically fried. Okay. <laughs> Linda? Linda? It's only because I have it sitting here in front of me. I know. I should have done that. I didn't mean to do that to you, Jay. I love you. That's okay. quite all right. Actually, the, in, now, remember, each year our respondent group is a different group of people than the year before. Right. So... We can't compare apples and oranges. However, what we did see in 2008 was the respondents reported an average of over $90,000 in fraud losses to businesses. Wow. In 2007, it was 48, almost $49,000. Um, and in 2006, it was interesting because it was about $87,000. So it varies from place to place. But in terms of cost of victims, the dollars that they're spending in out-of-pocket expenses, buying things, police reports, travel, and stuff, that's minimal, okay, compared to the number of hours that they're spending. And I'm going to clarify something, in, especially when we're talking about financial identity theft, which, again, was about 73% of them. In 2008, they spent 58 hour, an hour of 58 hours repairing the damage done to an existing account or an account takeover by the thief. And that's easier to find out because you get a statement and, you know, or you don't get your statement, you call up and you find out why you didn't get your statement. So if somebody takes over your account, it's easier to find out. How We're about talking if, about almost, what, six days of work, and seven that's, days of work. Right, now. and that should be easy, but it's not. What about no. when somebody takes creates accounts in your name? 165 hours. Yep. So it's That's still up there. That's the amount of hours I have this time off. Right, right. So now we have the problem of how do I do with this? Because you have to call out of them between the hours of 8 and 5. When I was a teacher, I could not have told a bunch of second graders, entertain yourself for the next hour while I'm on hold. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. So this time loss is an actual cost to victims. It it's is. If they have to, to take off childcare. of work, right. You can't do this with the toddler pulling on your leg. It's time taken from work, your vacation time that you're losing, which, you know what, after an identity theft case, you need a vacation. Exactly. What are you seeing? over a period of sometimes months or years. And you're talking about emotional issues. What did you learn from the 2008 report about the emotional impact on victims? I think it sometimes depends upon how long it took for them to get this resolved. About half of them seemed to get it resolved within the first six months. Others took about 30% took about up to two years, and 20% of them still have taken more than two years. Um, what we're finding is that we asked about, and we ask every year, have you ever felt any of these feelings before? And we have a list of about 40 that uh, psychologists put together, which are symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. And then we ask, are there any that you've had on the long term or have felt so serious that you were concerned enough to seek assistance? And those are the ones that we're really concerned with. And that's the sense of 30% feeling unable to trust people, 4% feeling suicidal, 
25% were ready to give up the fight. 10% believed they had lost everything. The answer of my family doesn't understand why I'm feeling like I do is higher than ever reported in the history of doing the aftermath. It's now at 33%. Oh, dear. 33% also reported that those close to them don't want to understand my feelings, which is really sad. Um, we were talking about earlier, family life is stressed. Children are also affected. Um, I put in here this year some thoughts about my feelings on the emotional impact. And I had some positive feelings of, yeah, they're angry, they're frustrated, and that's in the beginning. And those are energies I can put in a positive you know, direction because I can take that anger and let it fuel what they need to have done. Right. Okay. But when they feel like they are to blame, that they're an outcast, that they are undeserving of help, even if that number is still small, it pains me. Yes. Because there, this is not a victimless crime. There is not one victim out there, in my opinion, and this is just my opinion, who should feel that they're undeserving of help. They did not create the identity theft. The thief did. And Linda, we're going to have to go, but that's a great way to end this because we have, thank goodness, we have the Identity Theft Resource Center. We've got Jay and Linda Foley, the co-founders, and the wonderful people who have really led the way. And I want to thank you, and we will send people to idtheftcenter.org and give out your brand new toll-free number that you guys help so many wonderful people that that need your help at 888-455-30. And we'll have you back again. Thank you for doing this great study. And people can get a copy of the study, The Identity Theft, The Aftermath 2008, at your website. Am I correct? Absolutely, as well as see the other aftermaths that came before it. Thank you, Jay and Linda. You guys are wonderful. We'll have you back again. Thank you, Mari, for all the wonderful work you do as well. We love you. People don't realize that you are also a national expert and an advocate for all of us. Well, we appreciate it. You helped me find my way. (laughs) Well, we're a mutual admiration society, so thank you both for joining us tonight. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI. And also visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts and you can see um, and you can write us an email about what you want to know about about privacy in the information age. So thank you for joining us and good night. Stay private. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.